0: This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. In 2014, classical music met the 11 o'clock news. In New York... We have good news this
1: morning for opera lovers. The Wall Street Journal says New York's Metropolitan Opera has reached deals with
0: two of its largest unions. In St. Louis... Officials say at least 50 protesters sang the civil rights song Which Side Are You On? near the end of intermission. And they held up banners with the birth dates of the 18-year-old Michael Brown, uh, who was... And back in New York...
2: It's opening night for a
0: controversial
2: opera at the Met, but the real drama is playing out outside the opera house. Chopper 2, live over the scene where hundreds of protesters have gathered.
0: The death of Klinghoffer gave us a flyover by Chopper 2 and also this stirring chorus by composer John Adams. 2014 also saw a protest at the St. Louis Symphony over the death of Michael Brown and labor unrest at the Met that simmered all summer till the opera company struck an 11th hour deal with its labor unions. There were also artistic achievements in 2014, with musicians experimenting in intimate forms and big stars trying out challenging new roles. Here to give their highs and lows of the past year are three distinguished journalists. Anne Majette, the classical music critic of the Washington Post, David Patrick Stearns, classical music critic of the Philadelphia Inquirer and for WQXR's OperaVore blog, and Zachary Wolfe, freelance classical music critic for the New York Times. Anne, so much has been said about the death of Klinghoffer that we don't need to rehash all the arguments, but you consider the debate itself one of the low points of the year.
3: I was so saddened at the level of the discourse that otherwise intelligent people were falling victim to the sort of... Facebookization of rhetoric in which you sort of spout forth something without having really thought about it. That is the idea that terrorists were given their own voice or that people applauded when Klinghoffer was killed. I mean, opera and art are filled with villains who are given their voice. That's part of the great thing about art is that it gives you rounded characters and multiple points of view and people have been applauding death on the opera stage for centuries since the birth of the form there are certainly debates to be had about klinghoffer um and it was sad to have the level of it all be well why don't you write an opera about the kkk that for me was a real disappointment because I had hoped to have something more substantive come out of it.
2: I thought the whole thing was just such a straw man. I mean, because most of the people protesting didn't really know much about the piece. Some of yeah. them didn't know anything about the piece. And I, it just felt like such a non-issue to me.
0: Two months later, do you think the production of Klinghoffer ultimately helped or hurt the
2: Met? I think it showed that opera can matter. The Met can matter. It is not just this sort of accoutrement of, you know, being wealthy and well healed and cultured and all that. It can say things that can get people excited. Zach?
1: I think, I mean, it's good for the Met. I mean, it was great for the sales. Other people in other cultural institutions would, during that period, come to me and say, how are they making the front page every day? How are they making... I mean, this is like three days on the cover of the New York Post, and, like, you can't buy that kind of coverage or this a sense of just being at the center of things. What it means for the opera, I mean, I sympathize with John Adams when he said, as this whole controversy was going on, once you get sort of tarred with that anti-Semitism brush, it's very hard to get that erased, and so you now have a piece that's always going to be mired in some degree of controversy or it's always going to be kind of tainted in some way. And so I. it's unfortunate that sort of both the legitimate pros and legitimate cons of the opera... Again, a real discussion was obscured for a long time because of this non-discussion.
3: I mean, the Met threw fuel on the fire by canceling the HD broadcast, which is when the protests really started heating up because there was an idea that there was something to protest and that we could make the Met back down if we protested enough. And in that sense, it was kind of an artificial protest. I would love to see how it would have been received had the HD broadcast and the radio broadcast not been part of the equation.
2: Well, I think that there was sort of a volatility that was possible there that probably prompted the cancellation. But, you know, the sad thing about it is that there is an excellent film that is widely available of the death of Klinghofer. And that would bring people to the truth of the matter. All they have to do is look at it. And it happens to be a very good film.
3: (laughs) It was also a film that was rejected, I believe, from some Arab film festival because
0: it was too pro-Israeli, so Klinghofer really can't win. <laughs> In the WQXR online poll of Biggest Story of 2014, the Klinghofer debate narrowly beat out the Met labor troubles. What do you all think about the labor troubles at the Met and the fallout from that?
1: I mean, this is a season that, I mean, obviously for a long time looked like it might not happen at all and you would be kind of mired in yet another lockout or strike which would, because of the long-range planning cycles of opera really, up the reverberations go forward for years. The problem is that it seems like what we have now is something akin to the status quo. I mean, obviously there was some kind of compromise, but it seems that the structural issues involving that budget remain. The the issues of the length of the season, the number of productions, the fixed costs are really... I mean, there's a lot of window dressing that you can do and kind of small nips on both the side of the management and the side of the unions, but it seems like a real reckoning with this enormous institution has sort of been punted a little bit.
3: Given the amount of attention that is ostensibly given to unions and classical music and how the unions have made it too expensive to record this, that, and the other. It is remarkable the degree to which administrations seem to fail to comprehend basic facts about unions and their contracts. I think that the Met situation was exacerbated greatly by ignorance on the side of the administration and just a lack of understanding about how some of these seemingly ridiculous clauses had come to be and had been put into place. Um, of course, there is a real question about whether it is simply too expensive to put on opera on this scale and how it can be cut back. But this convenient solution of, oh, it's all the union's fault. And once again, this, let's go to the papers and on Facebook with, oh, they make $400 for moving a chair, those darn stagehands. is not really dealing with the issues or showing any kind of productive understanding, much less work toward a solution.
1: Right. It was very interesting. This fall, I did a profile of the Mets Chorus Master, and I had really never before spent Such an extended period of time backstage. I mean, I had been present at rehearsals and obvious and but before, but for that kind of elongated period with among both the chorus members, which who are unionized, and the stagehands, and I was left with, I mean, obviously kind of knowing this before intellectually, but with a kind of more visceral understanding of the complexity and insanity of what the work is like backstage for these unionized employees, the hours, the skill, etc., etc., which is not to say that it's tenable, but I don't think saying that the unions are being irresponsible or that they're making more than they should is a productive kind of line of argument. And this is not just in the opera world, obviously in the rest of classical music as well, which is like you need to have the inputs match the outputs, and that just is not happening. Well,
3: well, we get into so many things in the classical music world... We have our familiar sort of villains. Oh, the recession has hurt giving. Oh, the unions have made it too expensive. Well, the fact is that recession may have hurt giving, but philanthropy is doing really great. Look on Kickstarter. If you're a rich 50-year-old, there's lots of ways you can give money where you have an immediate impact on an artist whose creative work you can follow and become part of. And that's a lot more exciting then giving money to a huge institution that doesn't seem to be managing it all that well. When these large orchestras have been out on strike, all of the different um, financial struggles that these big institutions have had, the discourse is, again, predicated on false terms, I think.
0: You all cited in one way or another institutional troubles as being low points of the year, including the Met and the death and rebirth of San Diego Opera and orchestra lockouts in Atlanta and Minnesota. Anything to be done about any of this? Well, to me,
2: one of the, the lessons of the Met, once again, is that it really does matter. I mean, I was, you know, awake and alert and around during the last Met strike. And I think the impact of that, you know, was probably a fraction of what the impact would have been had they gone out this time. But I think also part of the anxiety is that something that we're seeing these days is that many times with these labor problems, it isn't lack of money. It's internal problems. It's like the old slasher movie where the threatening phone calls are coming from inside the house. (laughs) I I mean, Minnesota, that was an internal problem, right?
1: I think that what we're learning is that each of these situations is so individual. Each of these institutions has its own challenges, its own community. And so while there are these macro factors, it lands a situation give the, with the way that it's overseen and part of an arts center, which has its own priorities, is different than what's happening in Minnesota, an orchestra that owns its hall and is different than an orchestra that doesn't, an or- opera company that seems to have been questionably managed for many years is in a different situation than all of these. So it's sort of tempting to generalize, but I think it's so important to be dealing with each of these situations on their own terms and with their own challenges.
3: This is very true. And yet some of the terms that get thrown around, as I alluded to before, are similar in every case. Um, Everybody blames a lack of arts education. Everybody blames the recession and a lack of funding. Everybody blames high union costs. Um, And those terms keep coming up again and again. And those are the terms that get in the way of actually seeing what's going
0: on in the field in any useful way. Zach, your story of the year was New York's opera scene without city opera. Are there any other companies you see stepping in to fill the void?
1: Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of activity. I mean, what is seems at this point, to, or at least temporarily, to be sort of irretrievably lost is sort of alternate views of the sta- real stagings on the standard operas. So there's not a second Don Giovanni production with a second younger cast of up-and-coming singers to sort of be a compare and contrast with whatever the Met might have. That was what City Opera offered. That's what, in all of the kind of what we consider to be the cultural capitals of the world, happens. So we've sort of lost that, and that does not seem to be, for all of the kind of recent talk about the renaissance of City Opera, it does not seem to be immediately in the offing. However, there is, th- there is this amazing kind of ecosystem that remains and I think has been able in certain ways to flourish there is the prototype festival of new operas and opera-like works. I saw an amazingly interesting production of Handel's Alcina, which has never been done by the Met in a gallery in Chinatown. So there is a lot that is sort of percolating.
3: I was just wistfully or ruefully smiling to hear Zach invoke one of the purposes of city opera is offering an alternate take on don giovanni because when city opera was alive it seemed to me that one of the complaints people had is it's not doing anything different all it's doing is offering alternate takes on the standard repertory right. and that one of its you know ideal functions was in fact to be a pipeline for new american opera to offer work that the met wasn't doing and that too often they ended up yes in fact duplicating each other which you know very often happens in these in these cities with more than one opera company. Although I understand the spirit of what you were saying, I question whether having multiple productions of standard repertory works is actually the most useful function of a second repertory house.
1: Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I think obviously it seems like city opera's function was sort of taken over more and more by the Met, which at least was doing a better job of popularizing lower price seats, had the kind of young, more up-and-coming singers and sort of what at least seemed or could be marketed as more vibrant productions. But I think it's a crucial part of the opera ecosystem for there to be different takes on the standard repertory, especially at this point in which production yes. and theatricality and, I mean, direction is such a rich part of the scene. And Any
0: thoughts on the newly announced potential renaissance of city opera? Well,
2: <laughs> I think it all depends on who's running it.
1: I mean, just reading the New York Times, there seem to be just, I, I think that there's a lot of questions about just what are the abilities these people. In. The leadership needs to be tied to money. Who is fund it, going to fund this?
2: I think what they need is a silver bullet, like Beverly Sills. <laughs>
0: Unfortunately, well, but- <laughs> she is no longer available <laughs> before this conversation <laughs> gets too gloomy.
1: I, I, there's, lots, there's lots of happiness.
0: <laughs> All I, of you was- mentioned bright spots yeah. this
3: year. Can I throw one thing into the in- institutional discussion before we sure. entirely leave More it? More gloom. Because, um, no, these discussions end up so focused on New York. And of course, I'm not in New York anymore, which still shocks me. But um, the fact that the Kennedy Center has new leadership spotlights to me – just how much, how New York-centric our field still tends to be, and also spotlights the degree to which the Kennedy Center has not, despite all of its publicity, ever really fulfilled the function of being the kind of national arts, performing arts center that it seeks to be. And um, I'm really curious and kind of a hopeful way to see whether new leadership can change that. Deborah Butter has done some really great things in Chicago, and um, without scaring off the, the old has brought in some new feeling, and it would be very interesting should the Kennedy Center be able actually to start
0: defending its putative position as an American performing arts center. That is clearly one bright spot. David, in the Enquirer, you called the Seattle Symphony the best emerging American orchestra. The Seattle Symphony is clearly not new on the scene, so why did you put it like that?
2: Well, basically, they have this new music director, who is bringing a lot of new energy to it. Um, Ludovic Molo. Yeah, right, exactly. And one could say much the same about the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra because I think that Yannick Nizé-Séguin is definitely a success story. I think it is going as well as it possibly could go. You know, audiences adore him. The orchestra loves him. The programming is interesting. He's bringing back the St. Matthew Passion again. You know that doesn 't happen so often in you know major subscription concerts of symphony orchestras and and he's doing some new music. Things are actually looking fairly rosy in Philadelphia at the moment
3: in Seattle. I would throw into Seattle that yeah. Seattle now has a recording label which is disseminating this stuff, and their recording label and their new commission happened to win the Pulitzer Prize this year, um, which really does contribute to an idea that something's going on there, and it's also very satisfying to be able to hear the
0: recording with the orchestra of the piece that just won the prize and not have to wait five years for it. That piece being Become Ocean by John Luther Adams, they also picked up a handful of Grammy nominations for that.
2: Though, strangely enough, the recording mm-hmm. that's, that set everybody listening to to the Seattle Symphony again was by you Henri Deux, yes, which is not exactly crowd-pleasing repertoire. It's a, a long way from Scheherazade.
3: Well, I don't know that John Luther Adams is as crowd-pleasing as Shahrazad either, although you might well, argue that it's more than oh <laughs> uh,
2: Well, I I love that piece. I mean, I call it Alaska yeah. Impressionism. I I just took to it immediately. It also shows, I think, the
1: ways in which, I mean, it's important to let conductors and orchestras develop a kind of a personal character. I mean, and low obviously, while he conducts a broad repertory, I mean, there is a sort of f- French music, I mean, and a lot of 20th century French music that is his core, and they seem to be really eager to let him do what he loves to do. And so you kind of develop an identity in what, seem, what can seem like an increasingly very like homogenized programming landscape.
0: Well, it was hardly homogenized programming when Seattle had an appearance by rapper Sir Mix-a-Lot <laughs> that got three million, probably, and counting YouTube views. But it also got a lot of people bent out of shape. Was that a good thing for the orchestra? Sure. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, this is, they have these this late night series, this kind of late night alternative series. They want to be bringing out both younger composers and parts of Seattle's pop music heritage, be it grunge, etc., and to be working with that and doing experiments and having a good time.
3: The satisfying thing about the classical music audience is it is still, from the point of view of anybody who wants to be
0: provocative, so easy to promote. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know if it you can was get hard, everybody right. all up in arms. Exactly,
1: it is remarkably easy.
0: <laughs> and you said that the biggest story in the day-to-day practice of classical music was a trend towards intimacy and more personal approaches by musicians. I think this is a byproduct
3: of the internet culture, the changes in the recording industry, the changes in institutions, that in order to make your impact on a more fragmented and diverse field, all you can do is dig deeper into self-expression, which is, after all, the point of the field. I would say that musically, I had one of the most positive years I've had, maybe, in terms of just hearing concerts that stayed with me and inspired me and made me happy such as Evgeny Kissin reciting Yiddish poetry. If something on paper ever sounded like a disaster, that was (laughs) it. And it was truly amazing. It was really an inspired evening. And I believe that most of us in the hall went in thinking it was going to be Pretty awful. And most of us in the hall left kind of transported. He is a a really wonderful reciter of poetry, even obscure Yiddish poetry. And he played a lot of unfamiliar music. And it was really, and this was a one off for a presenter in Washington that specializes in Jewish themes and Jewish music. It's not just new work. Matthias Goerne gave the most enlightened Schöne Müllerin I may have ever heard. I, I remember that clearly. I could give you a half dozen other examples. I was really uplifted by music this year, which is, you know, in the midst of all of our discussions about institutions and the gloom and doom of the field um, is, is the most hopeful thing. kind of and what and you go to concerts thing. for. <laughs> it's what you go to concerts for. Absolutely.
0: Zach, your pleasant surprises of the year included Anna Netrebko's performance in Macbeth at the Met and Ted Hearn's The Source at BAM.
1: In both of these, they were surprising to me as a fan of both of these artists. And I think a lot of Anna Trebko's many fans were nevertheless sort of wowed by her performance in Macbeth and the turn that her repertory has taken towards a darker, more dramatic spinto, soprano parts from sort of the lyric and color things that she used to do. On a very different scale, there was Ted Hearn's The Source, which was at the small Fisher space at BAM. And Ted Hearn is a composer that I've been interested in for a long time. He does work that is politically charged. And in the source, he was dealing with the WikiLeaks documents that had been sort of disclosed by Chelsea Manning, formerly Bradley Manning. But he did so working with librettist and with a director and in this very small way with a kind of quartet of singers and a small ensemble. And the singers were sort of electronically altered, kind of with autotune in real time to kind of get this really half-animized, half-human sound. And the libretto was this sort of patchwork of documents and instant messages And the overall effect was incredibly ambiguous and haunting and the music incredibly assured and creepy and moving. It has stuck with me in the, I think about it almost every day since I've seen it. And so...
0: You mentioned that Ted Hearn really engages with society. And you felt that one of the big disappointments this year was the failure of classical music institutions to reflect society at large. It's really unfortunate that there are so many large institutions that take so much public and
3: private money and that really have trouble reflecting anything about the society they move in. I find it sad and telling that... It is notable that classical music made it into the headlines this year. That becomes the lead off of this segment. Classical music, in a way, has as much right in the headlines as any other art form. But the fact is we don't think of it as being that. And it doesn't usually address very immediately anything that's going on around us. uh, It tends to be sort of off in its own world. Um, Race is still a huge challenge in classical music. Um, The people that you're seeing on stage do not look like a cross-section of the world around us. As a whole, the field is not a reflection of the world it's in. And people might think it odd that I even demand that of classical
0: music, which is a regrettable thing to say about an art form. David, you find that classical music is taking root in a place that we wouldn't expect in a society we might not expect, namely China.
2: Yeah, well, the ongoing story is, and people have been asking this question rhetorically for a number of years yet, is, is China the future of Western classical music? And this year saw the first major national tour of a Chinese orchestra, the National Center for the Performing Arts Orchestra, from what, what is affectionately called the Egg, referring to its architecture, in Beijing. And I personally, I heard the, the concert that they gave in Washington, D.C. I, I don't think that they were ready for this kind of a tour yet, but they will be.
3: Isn't the question whether they have wind instruments? I thought that one of the issues in China was that everybody's playing string instruments and piano and that they have a really hard time in a lot of their orchestras with uh, other sections.
2: Well, this orchestra, they've managed to populate it. You know, there's there's yeah. still, of course, many of them come over here to get their final education and then, and then go back or stay. There are plenty of Chinese musicians in American
0: orchestras. And uh, again, they want it. Well... To leave things on an up note, 11% of the people who responded to our WQXR poll about the past year said the biggest story for them was opera singers appearing in sports stadiums. Renee Fleming at the Super Bowl, Anna Netrebko at the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics, and Joyce DiDonato singing at the World Series. Robert Merrill in his grave is going,
3: what am I, chopped liver?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And of course... On another bright note, we've got Mozart in the jungle, classical music- <laughs> musicians in a sitcom or a semi-com or something like that. Thank you all for all of your insights. We've been talking with Anne Majette, the classical music critic of The Washington Post, David Patrick Stearns, classical music critic of The Philadelphia Inquirer, and WQXR's Opravore blog, and Zachary Wolfe, freelance classical music critic for The New York Times. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Happy New Year.